Hello, and welcome to Crashing the War Party. I am here with my co-host and friend, Daniel Larison, as we bring you the brightest and most intense of alternative and independent voices in U.S. foreign policy and our wars overseas. Today, we will be talking to Jacobin reporter and analyst Bronco Markatik on his latest reporting on the war in Ukraine, the discord leaks, and U.S. sanctions across the globe. But first, Dan and I would like to bring your attention to some unfolding events in foreign policy, four headlines that we think are indicative of where the trend lines are going, both on the war and in Ukraine and the fraught relationship between the U.S. and China. I'd like to start with the unexpected or the expected counteroffensive in Ukraine, something um, that uh, we've been anticipating for some time now. Over the weekend, Ukrainian President Zelensky promised uh, that his country would start soon uh, with this counteroffensive, but that it needs more weapons from the West to really begin in earnest. Now, there's a lot riding on this, Dan. Germany responded over the weekend by saying it would give $3 billion in assistance to Ukraine, including 30 tanks. On Sunday, Zelensky was also able to secure more weapons pledges from France. And he was back in UK, in the UK on Monday to meet with uh, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. Last week, Washington promised another $1.5 billion in weapons to Ukraine. But what I'm hearing more and more in the whispers throughout Washington is that if Ukraine cannot pull this counteroffensive off, then the U.S. is going to run out of steam and start pushing for negotiations, which wouldn't be a bad thing. Um, but... The opposite outcome would be if the U.S. just left Ukraine to a stalemate. Uh, we've done that before. Uh, we've left countries after we've thought we've had enough of pumping up the war machine and we weren't getting the victory we wanted. Um, I'm thinking, you know, Vietnam is probably the best example of that. More recently, Iraq, um, Afghanistan. I mean, after 20 years, we, you know, we have this history of breaking things and then and then leaving um, Dan, where do you think all of this is going in terms of the counteroffensive and what the U.S. is sort of gearing up uh, to do if and when that counteroffensive doesn't uh, it, it doesn't turn out the way we had hoped it would? Uh, sure, thanks, Kelly. So, I the, the way that I'm looking at a lot of this is that it seems like there's a lot of expectations management going on, where the the Ukrainian government is trying to. Uh, of course, they they are always interested in getting more support, but they're also trying to uh, to make the case in advance that if things don't go well, it's because they didn't get enough support soon enough, and so that you know they're they're already setting up uh, an explanation for why things don't go as well as as maybe some people in Washington would like to see. Uh, and there's I think there's also some uh, some concern in Washington that no matter how many weapons get thrown into the mix, uh, that it's simply not going to be possible to dislodge the Russians from the places that they've already taken over. And that, to some extent, uh, stalemate is already baked in uh, for the rest of the year. Uh, that's, that's certainly what the, the intelligence leaks suggested was the, the view from inside the government. And I, and I think that's probably right. Uh, so I, I think we're, we're gradually being eased into to accepting that it's not going to be very successful or that it's, you know, any successes that it does have will be treated as a surprise or as a, as a, uh, an unexpected, uh, triumph, uh, rather than, uh, something that was uh, assumed to be the case all along. Um, 
so I, I think you're, you're going to see more Western aid flowing into Ukraine uh, as we've as we've been seeing over the last year. Uh, there will be some attempt to retake territory, but I, I imagine it's it's probably not going to be as ambitious as a lot of the the super hawks in the U.S. would like to see, and and probably a lot of these debates over you know, whether they should try to retake Crimea or or can they take retake Crimea will be will probably be moot because it's not it's not even going to become a live issue uh, for the foreseeable future. Uh, they'll, they'll be, I think, struggling to retake uh, much smaller portions of territory uh, going forward. I, I totally agree. So what do you got for us for a headline? This uh, week? Right. So the, the first one uh, is covering the meeting that took place between Jake Sullivan and Wang Yi in Vienna. Uh, they, they met in on Newton territory, uh, you know, in a third country, uh, I guess neither one wanting to go to the, where the other one was. Uh, I, I suppose that was their way of uh, meeting each other halfway, uh, so to speak. And so the, the headline from the AP was, Top Biden aide tells Chinese diplomat that U.S. wants to move beyond spy balloon, uh, which is good news. It's, it's an encouraging sign that the top officials in both governments realize that the breakdown in relations following the spy balloon incident uh, were, uh, was, a, was a mistake, or was was an unfortunate diversion from where they had wanted to go when uh, Biden and she had hammered out some kind of uh, path for not for improving relations again after they had deteriorated so badly after last year's visit by Pelosi to Taiwan. And so it's of course it's welcome news that they're they're trying to repair ties, uh, but it, we should put it in perspective that this is. Uh, really, and extra repair work that they they shouldn't have had to do. Uh, the, the reason that they're doing this repair work now is that the Biden administration overreacted to the spy balloon, canceled Blinken's trip, and and threw a wrench in the works uh, of the uh, attempt at rapprochement that was already happening before that. So. So while it's, it's certainly a good sign that they're trying to patch things up or at least get things back to a, a certain stable baseline, uh, it, it says a lot about how terrible the U.S.-Chinese relationship is that simply resuming normal communications at a, t- at a high level is treated as some kind of victory. Uh, it, it should be taken for granted that our governments have these communications all the time. It shouldn't be this rare thing this, that requires special effort to do. It, it's something that ought to be maintained on, on a regular basis because if we don't have that, and we've seen what happens when we don't have that, the relationship deteriorates very quickly because there are so many interested parties on both sides, uh, and, and especially in Washington, that want to see the relationship keep getting worse and worse. And so it's it's to the Biden administration's credit that they are trying to push back against some of that, uh, but they wouldn't be in the position that they're in now if they hadn't already caved into those pressures earlier. Yeah, no, I agree. And I am, I am the last person that is going to defend uh, the Chinese government, the communist party, uh, particularly the way that they treat their people um, and their policies in that regard. But that said, I think that the, the Biden administration is responding to the uh, China's 
very aggressive, um, and I say aggressive, maybe I say ambitious efforts at diplomacy in other parts of the world right now, which is getting a lot of headlines. So we have seen them broker a deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia. We see them getting involved in other aspects of the Middle East. We see them getting involved in, um, most importantly, the Ukraine war and offering to be a mediator in that war, including issuing a peace plan. Whether you like it or not, they're out there. They have, uh, they're sending an envoy this week as we speak to both Ukraine and Russia to talk about this peace plan. They're all over the place. They have uh, welcomed uh, Macron in the last week, uh, the French president. They've welcomed a number of European leaders, including from Germany. And uh, so they have not sat still one bit over the last two months since that balloon incident happened. So they're showing all sorts of gumption to get out there. And, and this is not to say that everything is what it seems and that all of their motives are pure as a driven snow. All I'm saying is that they have not uh, reflected this sort of wolf warrior um, presence um, or approach that the United States has wanted to affix to them. Instead, they're doing all of these things that we have wanted them to do in terms of being part of an, the international community, or at least showing some effort to be a player um, and be committed to some sort of um, diplomatic process, whether it be in the Middle East or Africa or in Ukraine. And so I think that we are sort of dragged into the situation where he says, well, we can't very well continue to give them the cold shoulder. And guess what? They were giving us the cold shoulder uh, following what happened with the balloon. Um, they, they saw us as, as, as sort of talking about out, out two sides of our mouths in terms of what we wanted uh, from the relationship and what we were saying publicly, which was a lot of stuff about um, China giving weapons or considering to give weapons to Russia and whatnot. And so we were giving mixed messages as well. So I think this is a good thing. This is a positive thing. Um, I, and also, you know, I've heard, and I'm sure you did, uh, Dan, too, that there has been a, re, a, a, a little bit of thawing where that peace plan is concerned. And, and the United States is no longer saying outwardly that, uh, or dismissing, uh, the Chinese efforts to, to mediate in in Ukraine as as some sort of of, of stunt. We're actually saying things like, "Well, if China is serious about engaging in this way, um, that's a good thing." And so I, I feel like we kind of got dragged into it, but um, not going to really complain. Um, oh, so on with the headlines. I feel like I wanted to comment a little bit about the Trump. Uh, town hall on CNN last week. It was very interesting that he had come out pretty forcefully about Ukraine and Ukraine, uh, CNN rather had asked him very pointedly, do you think that Ukraine will win this war? You know, how, what is, you know, what is your support level for continuing to send weapons? And, and Trump said something to the effect of, I just want to stop the dying. I want to talk. I'll get this thing ended in 24 hours if I'm president. 
he's said things before like that on, on Tucker Carlson more recently. But my point is, is that I think that he is setting himself up against the Republican st- establishment, which is very much still hawkish on Ukraine. If anything, they criticize Biden for not giving more weapons to Ukraine and not being in, in, if not being more engaged, you know, on the ground in in Ukraine. Uh, So I feel like this sets up that dichotomy, restraint versus hawkishness on the Republican side. My only question is, does this risk associating the restraint position too closely to President Trump at a time when Biden is going to make MAGA the source of all evil in this country? Uh, does this ha- does this hurt restraint overall to be so associated with this guy? Well, I mean, to the extent that people do associate him with it, uh, then I mean, I, yeah, I think it, it can be damaging. Uh, the, the 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 funny thing, or the the I guess the the thing to keep in mind when thinking about Trump foreign policy is that he will sometimes talk a good game. He'll say some of the right things or some things that sound similar to things that we say, uh, but he either doesn't follow through on it or he doesn't mean it or or he, he gets distracted very easily by some new uh, new obsession. Mm-hmm. And so my, my concern is not that he's saying he wants to stop the dying. I, I think lots of people would agree with that sentiment. Uh, and, and I think they would agree that there should be negotiations to try to hammer out some sort of ceasefire if not uh, a full settlement uh the the issue becomes uh, you know what well, one can you actually trust him to follow through on anything that he says in this respect i don't think you can uh and and uh, and would he know how to negotiate a peace uh, if he were in a position to do so i i think we're we can be very confident saying he doesn't know how uh we we saw how he handled uh engagement with the north koreans uh he, he treated it as a spectacle and not as a serious negotiation. And and he approached it with uh, very high-handed demands. And, and I think probably what you'll see, uh, if if he were to be elected again and he were in a position to do something about it, I think you would find him uh, suddenly singing a new tune uh, because he, he would often talk about ending our wars when he was president, but he never actually did it because he was always pushed away from the, those goals by the people that he put around himself. Yeah. And in so, the Pentagon. Uh, yes. And so, so he, he may say some things that, that sound like the right message, but I, you know, I don't, I don't believe it really. I don't, I don't believe him. And so, uh, I think, I don't think in that sense, restrainers have much to worry about because if you look closely at what he does versus what he says, he's, he's not really, in the restraint camp, uh, in practice. And so that's, uh, that's the thing to keep in mind. Let's try to get to your last headline. We only got like a minute or two left. So, and so yeah, just very quickly, uh, another AP headline, uh, South Africa summons us ambassador over weapons for Russia allegations. Our ambassador to South Africa said that a ship, uh, a sanctioned ship, uh, was loaded with weapons, uh, at a South African naval base. And that the, the ambassador was certain that this was approved by the South African government and that this was, this had happened. The South Africans, of course, vehemently deny it. They say that they have a policy of not arming any state engaged in, uh, in a conflict like that, uh, especially an aggressive party like Raqqa. And so, uh, while they maintain 
generally good relations with Russia otherwise. Uh, they they insist that they're not providing weapons. And so this is really uh, soured relations between the U.S. and South Africa. Uh, my, my one comment on this, and so we can be uh, done quickly, I think, is just that even if there is some evidence that there were illegal shipments going on in South Africa, it, I think it was a mistake for the ambassador to air this publicly. Uh, it, it creates a rift with South Africa at the same time that the U.S. is busily trying to improve its relations with African countries, and for South Africa being one of the most important and influential of those countries, uh, it, it really doesn't help that cause uh, if you're publicly um, pointing the finger at them and accusing them of enabling uh, war crimes. So that's the uh, that, that's all I had to say about that. We'd like to welcome Bronco Marchetich to the show today. Bronco is a Jacobin staff writer and author of Yesterday's Man, The Case Against Joe Biden. His work has appeared in The Washington Post, The Guardian, In These Times, Responsible Statecraft, and others. Welcome to the show, Bronco. Hey, thanks very much for having me. Yeah, I mean, I'm really excited to have you here. Um, You've done some amazing reporting over the course of the Ukraine war and um, offered an independent voice uh, to the sort of sea of uh, orthodoxy uh, from the mainstream media. And so it's, it's very much appreciated. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about the Discord leaks. When they were first reported back in April, the leaks told us that the White House was a lot less sanguine about the hopes for the Ukrainian counteroffensive this spring. Um, then the White House was generally letting on publicly. We also found out that there were more U.S. troops in Ukraine on the ground than we've been told, and that the U.S. government had been spying or strong-arming partners like North Korea uh, into sending military assistance to Ukraine. But the leaks haven't stopped. Uh, more recently, we hear that Zelensky and the hardliners and his government want to hit inside Russia with long-range missiles, something that Zelensky has promised the West that he wouldn't do. The leaks also indicate that the Wagner Group, he- uh, the head of the Wagner Group, Prigozhin, might have been trying to make a secret deal with Ukraine. This was something that just came out over the weekend. On that, on that score, the Washington Post reported um, a Q&A with Zelensky in which they asked him directly about this particular leak. And, uh, it, you know, he pretty much flipped out on, on the Washington Post reporter saying that the, the Washington Post actually wanted to help Russia by reporting on these leaks. Um, Branko, what are you what are you taking away from the, the leaks in general? And uh, first, what have they revealed about the U.S.-Zelensky relationship and um the fact that we are getting a different story from the government in terms of what they tell us publicly about the war and what they are saying privately with um, with other leaders and with each other inside the Pentagon. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say generally my biggest takeaway is, is, is just that. It's just how much we have been misled by not just the people in power, you know, uh, elected officials in the U.S. and, 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 and all 
uh, NATO states, but also the way that the, the press, I think, has, has not really done a great job of relaying um, the truth of, of what we're watching. Um, you know, I mean, I, I would say it's not unfair to say that that from the you know the the start of this war certainly since the uh, the the successful um uh, offensive uh last year the ukrainian offensive the narrative that's been portrayed as one of you know ukraine is is on this kind of inexorable march to victory um and all they need is just just more weapons and the right weapons and and you know russia's going to be toast uh and that has served to really fuel um, just the conflict uh, going on indefinitely. And I mean, you know, untold amount of carnage on the Ukrainian side as well as on, on the Russian side. But, but, you know, the Ukrainian losses don't get really quite as publicized. Um, and I think that that makes people uh, feel a lot more comfortable about keeping the war going as, as much as possible. I think it, it dampens the um, uh, calls for uh, uh, any sort of talks uh, or any sort of diplomacy to, to try and bring this to some kind of close. Um, so I think you know, that's the biggest, the general takeaway um, in terms of what it tells us about the U.S.-Zelensky uh, relationship. I mean, yeah, of course, uh, there's this whole public front that they're completely united. You know, uh, I think Biden made that um, that trip to Kiev where he he basically he said, you know, we're going to support Ukraine for as long as possible, no matter what. I mean, I think that that happened maybe a, a day or two after um, reporting came out that that basically. <laughs> Had uh, Biden or at least Biden officials telling Zelensky, "Hey, we're actually not going to support you um, that much longer, so you need to, to make something out of this offensive." So obviously, there's there's um, uh, uh, it, it's a far more complicated relationship. It, it, it shows that that uh, despite the fact that the Biden administration has this posture of you know we we basically just defer to Ukraine in terms of decision making, the US has actually stepped in to restrain. Ukraine from time to time, the Ukrainian leadership, I should say, um, which actually is a, is a good thing. That kind of made me a little more um, uh, uh, I don't know, hopeful or optimistic about how the course of this war is going on because it, it shows that this public rhetoric of basically just outsourcing uh, foreign policy and, 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 and war-making, decision-making uh, to, to Ukrainian leadership isn't actually being followed through. Uh, uh, you know, in, in real life. I mean, I think the, the last kind of takeaway for me is just um, uh, uh, the, the incredible dangers of this war and how as much as they're maybe evident to, to, to people like ourselves, um, it's actually much worse than we even realized. You know, there was that, that um, information about the fact that uh, uh, the, the uh, sort of scuffle between um, a, a Russian and British plane last year uh, that the you know, caused some alarm. It wasn't really clear what exactly had happened. And it turns out that actually was was much, much, much closer to, to triggering something that could have really spun out of control. Um, and it was basically just a malfunction that saved all of us from some sort of disaster um, that we would never have known about otherwise. Um, and similarly, this recent news about um, Zelensky, not just having plans to, to strike within Russia, but also, you know, apparently in a, in a fit of rage, uh, talking about attacking a, a pipeline from Russia to Hungary, which is a NATO state, and talking about bringing down uh, Orban's industry. I mean, you know, you, you don't have to, to really even extrapolate that much to, to, to imagine what would happen in, in that scenario if Hungary's uh, uh, industry was brought down because um, this pipeline was destroyed. I mean, would, would, you know, Ukraine say, yeah, that was us, or would basically everyone, every sort of, Hawkish commentator immediately blamed Russia and, you know, 
things start to escalate from there. I mean, it's 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 all pretty pretty uh, harrowing stuff when you start to think about it. You know, I'd like to. I mean, I I try to put myself in Zelensky's shoes. You know, just for a moment, and it feels like I mean, when you look at these leaks and the the spying that's been going on in terms of the U.S. government, some of the things that we've overheard or have reported back, or at least our intel has, it shows a man who's under increasing pressure, not only from the West but from the hardliners in his own government to perform. And on the on the international stage, there's been headline after headline that uh, expects this counteroffensive. It talks about it as though it's this last stand that Ukraine has to make uh, to push Russia out. It talks uh, the, the headlines also talk, or at least the subheads always talk about how Ukraine has drained troops. It has drained resources. Uh, we hear reports from Europe and from the United States about our own stockpiles being drained. How much longer can we continue to fuel this war? And I would imagine, you know, he's looking at his situation and saying, okay, I have to do something because if I don't, then the West, my, my Western allies are just going to ditch me. And I think that is what we're hearing. So to Voce. Now, why the that Europe would all of a sudden go into you know first gear and giving him more money and more weapons? Germany apparently just doubled the amount of its pledges uh, for weapons to Ukraine. France is putting in more. We're giving more. You know, there there seems to be a lot of mixed messaging here, and what I'm hearing from analysts here in Washington is that. Ukraine might be in a much worse spot than we even know about. And even if they do manage to get this counteroffensive and they actually maybe gain some territory, there's nothing left after that. And so I just, I feel like, you know, we're, you know, the West and the United States in particular is responsible for putting this guy in a bit of a pickle. And we do have a historical, you know, we have a history of putting all of this effort and raising up these countries to fight our wars for us and then ditching them when they don't go as planned or we're tired or we have the next shiny object to turn our attention to. Do you get a sense that, you know, th- this guy is just like, I mean, maybe that, uh, that interview with the Washington Post where he just really went off on the reporter, you know, questioning their patriotism and, and their loyalty to the to the war, I mean, does that that reflects a man that's under a bit of stress? Yeah, I think so. I mean, and also, I think in, in the West generally, there's no appreciation um, for the fact that that you know Zelensky's a politician. Um, the things he says in public are not always necessarily what he means in private. I mean, you know, it, it sort of relates to this whole issue of Ukrainian agency that we keep hearing about we've heard about since the start of the war and you know the idea is that we should respect ukrainian agency and i agree obviously that is an important consideration but but you know how do you define ukrainian agency i mean when Zelensky was in the very early stages of the war for many months i mean there were public statements he was making I, i think definitely into may maybe possibly even into june saying you know we have to to peace talks are the only way we're going to get out of this 
uh, calling for the West to be more involved um, in helping him negotiate uh, uh, with with Putin, um, even after Bucha, you know, saying that, you know, this is a horrendous thing that's happened, but at the end of the day, you know, that it's going to be difficult, but there still has to be talks to try and end this war. Those statements have always been just completely ignored. It's only the hawkish statements from uh, Zelensky and, and his, uh, you know, inner circle that kind of get publicized. And then people say, oh, we'll see. We, we have to listen to that. Um, and, you know, I think there's been... Uh, quite a bit of evidence that Zelensky, uh, you know, we, we don't have necessarily reporting on the inside, but there are indications just from the way that he's been contradicted on, on you know, the issue of negotiations in public by some of his advisors. It, it you know, it's clear that, that you know, the, the Ukrainian leadership, uh, it's not a monolith. Um, there are variations in there. Um, and I think we in the West uh, have just chosen to listen to the particular faction or the particular strand of opinion in Ukraine that that maybe suits the um, the, the strategy or the outcome that that we want, you know, which has been kind of to, to have a prolonged war and to to have a war that inflicts as much uh, damage in Russia. Um, you know, I, I wish there was a little more nuance uh, around that reporting, and I, I think it's not even necessarily that good for Ukraine. I mean, if there was more uh, uh, focus on, on this kind of, uh, you know, Zelensky's inclination towards talks early in the war, if there was more focus on, hey, what exactly, sure, Ukraine has maybe reclaimed some territory, but what what are these actually, these losses that it's experiencing adding up to? I mean, if the economy, you know, has has contracted by, what, 45% and, you know, it's losing, I think they were saying six figures was general intelligence's uh, estimation in, in Bakhmut in, in, in January. What does that actually mean? I mean, is it, is it winning territory, but actually basically actually ending up in a worse place? And maybe that would have created more momentum um, uh, to actually find some sort of uh, 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 peace earlier uh, that would have been better for Ukraine in the long run. Um, and I think, you know, unfortunately, again, uh, it, it's the, the reporting on this, I think, and the analysis has been driven more by kind of the particular outcome that that one, uh, you know, more uh, aggressive faction in, in the West prefers and not necessarily when it's actually conducive to, to better outcomes for Ukraine. Hey, Branko. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, turning to a, a different topic, uh, you, you've written recently about uh, the effects of economic sanctions. You were writing a piece uh, just last week about a new paper by Francisco Rodriguez on the human consequences of sanctions. Uh, and it's an important paper. I've, I've read it too, and uh, it's, it's really uh, very uh, insightful and, and tells us a lot about what the sanctions are doing. Uh, it spells out the destructive effects of economic warfare on the targeted populations, uh, specifically using Iran, Afghanistan, and Venezuela as case studies. Uh, what are some of Rodriguez's findings uh, that you found most interesting and uh, what do you think their implications are for U.S. policy? Well, first of all, it's important to note that Rodriguez, you know, he's a, he's a Venezuelan economist, but uh, he, he also worked for Merrill Lynch. Uh, he worked for the U.N. He actually advised a, a opposition politician that was running against uh, Maduro in, I think, uh, 2018. So, you know, you can't, you can't say that this guy is some sort of... Um, you know, sought for the for the regime in Venezuela. Um, he's, he's critical of it, and yet even he finds that these sanctions that the U.S. is 
that the US government has placed in Venezuela in an attempt to, to you know, collapse the, the, the government and, and get a new one in um, have not only been obviously a failure, I mean, Maduro is still in power, uh, but also just on a humanitarian level, on, on the on the level of you know human uh, uh, need, the the thing that we sort of constantly talk about when we when we discuss the importance of these sanctions. Ironically, it's it's absolutely catastrophic for these populations. And so he um, looked at I think thirty two different papers that studied uh, uh, the effects of sanctions on a variety of countries, including those. Uh, you know, over the years, and he found basically a, a overwhelming consensus that that sanctions basically um, uh, uh, lead to a worse outcome on, on almost every possible metric you can think of. You know, child m- m- mortality, uh, uh, poverty, uh, even things like democratic rights and, 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 and repression and, and democracy. Uh, uh, you know, every every possible thing you can think of, uh, sanctions just exacerbate them and make them worse. Um, that's definitely the case in Venezuela, Afghanistan. He he, um, you know, says that it's a, it's a little harder because there hasn't been the same level of data collection. But Afghanistan, you can you can sort of trend. You, you can plot the trend lines around you know uh, infant mortality and, and, and child mortality, and it lines up pretty pretty much with you know the the impact of U.S. sanctions or the dates that they were put in place. Um, and, and similar thing with Iran. I mean, you know, there's been reporting about this for a long time, um, but uh, I think this really puts it into perspective just how destructive these uh, this, this instrument that we're told is kind of an alternative to war. And and what he says, you know, a couple of times in that paper is that that the the what sanctions end up doing to these countries is you can only find a comparison to this kind of massive drop in living standards um, in countries that have actually had, had war waged against them. So it's not really an alternative war. It's an alternative form of war. And, and he, I remember in the paper, he points out that uh, in some ways it, it can be even deadlier than armed conflict because of its indiscriminate and, and widespread nature targeting the, the entire population rather than just maybe one one part of the country or, or certain parts of the country. Um, now, so what do you think it is that accounts for the continued frequent use of broad sanctions uh, when, when this evidence is so uh, overwhelming and it is and it is actually fairly well known even among policymakers uh, but when you have this much evidence showing that they're destructive and useless uh, what what uh, what keeps them going what what keeps people coming back to them as a policy option well I mean uh, you know I think uh, you guys well know that uh, with a <laughs> Something as effective or not does not always uh, uh, actually have that much of an impact on <laughs> whether elected officials decide to use it. Um, unfortunately, you know, on foreign policy has been a, a history of terrible decision making, um, despite the fact that that you know we have historical examples that show us how bad it was. I mean, you know, the, the uh, intervention in Libya happened eight years after after Iraq went so horribly wrong, um, and of course that went terribly wrong very quickly too um and it's not clear that we uh, or at least the people in power learned uh, that much from it um you know i mean i think i think there's always this it seems like there's a a need to um increasing need among among uh, uh u.s officials to prove uh america's credibility um uh, but but without going to to 
full scale war because I think uh, the the you know social economic and political costs of that uh, through the Bush years just demonstrated it just that that wasn't a viable option anymore. You know, if you could somehow just limit um, U.S. boots in the ground as much as possible, but but still try and basically um, uh, use uh, uh, U.S. global power to 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 basically, um, you know, uh, shift politics in the country or, or you know, get your way. Um, uh, I think that that was the the road they ended up taking. Um, and so, you know, if you if you can't send uh, troops into into every country and, and would you know launch multiple wars anymore, well, there is still this uh, very powerful tool of economic sanctions that that can be used to um, send a signal, um, send disapproval uh, uh, against governments and leaders that, that you don't like. Um, and, and, you know, at the same time, you can get away with it because um, I think people don't have a sense that sanctions are, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, as destructive as they are. I think they still have this um, image in people's minds that it's kind of this almost humane uh, alternative instead of, you know, go, going to fill out war. And I mean, uh People, I think, also still think sanctions are kind of this just uh, nothing policy that, that doesn't actually do anything. I mean, I, I, I remember talking to a friend soon after the, the invasion, uh, uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine happened, and we were talking about the U.S. response, and he, you know, he wanted, he was saying, no, they need to send in troops, they need to fight Russia, so on and so forth. And, and I said, well, you know, they have imposed these sanctions that are sort of you know, crippling to the Russian economy. That's pretty extreme. And, and he, his response was kind of like, oh, you know, whatever, sanctions. So there, I think there is this perception um, that they that they the sanctions aren't that uh, – we would say they're not effective, but for, for I think the, the ordinary person out there, they're seen as ineffective in, in a different way. They're seen as kind of like not really that that powerful – a tool when the actual reality is it's, it's sort of both it's they're ineffective at the uh at the at the sensible goal that they have which is to um, bring down governments and, and induce policy changes um but they're extremely effective in terms of causing human misery and and you know just dilapidating a country um so you know i, I think uh, i think it's just a, a perfect storm of, of of all these things you know a couple of that with the, the constant um uh, impulse, I think, in, in, in U.S. politics to, to, to feel the need to, to intervene in some way uh, in conflicts instead of, you know, trying to find some way to kind of, um, you know, bring the parties together to, to, to bring war to a close. And you know, one of the things that Rodriguez points out in the paper that I thought was really uh, important insight to, to keep in mind is he says the populations most affected by sanctions are also voiceless in decisions about their adoption. And and that's uh, really the the crucial thing. The the balance the debate over sanctions is so heavily imbalanced because the the victims or or potential victims of these policies are are both uh, invisible in our debates and 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 have no voice in those debates for the most part. And so, or or, or right, they they'll you'll find you know an, an Iranian uh, expat who lives in the U.S., who has a very hawkish line, who's, who hates the regime and is very much in favor of, of using sanctions to try and uh, collapse the government. And so then they get pointed, and, and, and we, you know, similar to the, I think, uh, Ukraine war uh, discourse, it's, you know, we have to listen to the local voices. And, of course, we pick and choose which yeah. uh, local voices we want to listen to. We want to listen to the ones that are supporting the policy that we would uh, uh, have wanted to do anyway. Um, so that, that's sort of how, how 
how people, or, you know, how, how policymakers get around that that problem. I think. Right. Well, and, and then the the influence of diaspora politics uh, in, in the, on the domestic debate is is another factor. Of course, that that was it's been very important in shaping Venezuela policy, as you have lots of exiles in Florida, of course, uh, agitating for a very uh, a very hard line approach, uh, which of course has backfired rather terribly, uh, which has contributed to the the mass migration of, of millions of Venezuelans out of the country. Um, and so just one last question on sanctions. Uh, how do you think we can sort of turn it around or, or, or turn it uh, on its head to, to get it where, to where support for sanctions is the politically radioactive option uh, instead of sanctions relief being the, the thing that nobody wants to go near? Well, how do we do it? I mean, uh, I, I think to some extent, uh, the, the, what, what some of the lawmakers have done uh, recently, but pointing out that, that you know, the, the border crisis or whatever you want to call it, the, the, the surge of migration, that that is related to um, uh, these sanctions. I mean, I think, unfortunately, I, I would love if people um, made thought of our foreign policy or made decision making based on the, the 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 needs and the and the and the effects that that these things have on on populations uh, overseas that would be great but you know i, I know realistically um it, it, it also it's it's much more to do with the costs actually felt um within the u.s and i mean that is one of the costs and it's not just a, a social and economic cost but it's a political cost i mean i don't think joe biden um wants to to have bad news uh, at the southern border. And so I think if we can, yeah, maybe start to, to reframe this as, you know, the, 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 to, to, to emphasize some of the costs that are being felt within uh, the United States, uh, similar to how, you know, the, the, the number of um, dead and wounded and, and, and traumatized veterans coming back to the United States from these wars launched in the 2000s, I think really made this idea of, of constant uh, overseas intervention toxic, maybe maybe a similar thing can uh, can can happen here. Um, I don't know. Um, I mean, I, I think emphasizing both, both the costs to the to the foreign populations and the local ones, is good. But but we really should try and you know explain how um, how this stuff blows back on on the United States. It doesn't it doesn't serve U.S. interests. Well, I mean, it's certainly blowing back. Uh, the sanctions on Russia have blown back. On a number of fronts, in terms of the the energy crisis, the the inflation, the food crisis, I mean, all 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 of that is affected by the global sanctions that have been put on Russia. Do you think those sanctions are actually working to cripple Russia in its war front war effort in Ukraine? Um, I mean, I've heard multiple analyses. Um, I mean, all indications right now that the Russian economy is. is Fairly stable, um, but but I've also you know I've, I've read stuff that that suggests that you know maybe in the next year or two uh, or, or coming years uh, that's when the pain is really going to be felt. But I mean I think one thing you can say it definitely has not um, you know deterred Russia from from right. raging this war or, or simply escalating it. I mean uh, yeah I, I think it's safe to say the war now is. is Far more intense and, and being waged far more brutally by by uh, Russian forces than it was at the start of the the conflict. Um, so it hasn't worked. I mean, I think you know one defensible way that you could say you know that in in this particular case sanctions uh, are worth it is if they had been used as some sort of a bargaining chip, right? Right. To, to um, we're going to put these really really strict sanctions. 
that potentially could cripple your economy. But you know, um, it, it, we're engaged in a process of dialogue, and 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 uh, this is on the table. If uh, uh, you want to, you know, if you decide that, that you want to stop fighting, this is one thing, one inducement we can use to to, to make that happen. We can we can trade this. But I, I mean, unfortunately, I think you know it, this is this has never been kind of officially confirmed. But I think there's enough reporting out there that that suggests that the plan with these sanctions is not to use them as a bargaining chip. It's a temporary bargaining chip to to try and um, you know get Russia to withdraw to or to you know simply um, you know use in a, any sort of uh, negotiations. But it was used to to try and collapse. The government, as it has been used in Iran and Venezuela and Cuba and North Korea and so on and so forth, and and so far it seems to be having um, as much success as that, in that as, it, as it's had in all those countries. It, it hasn't done that at all, and it's amazing that anyone would think that it, it, this would work, given the terrible track record um, that sanctions have had. You know, against against much um, much less powerful countries. Right. And, and, and much less economically, you know, uh, uh, important countries. Well, we've run out of time. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Um, do you want to tell us, is there anything that you're working on for, for Jacobin that uh, we can keep an eye out for? Um, nothing so far. I, I may have a piece coming out about, you know, this, this issue of Ukrainian agency and kind of, you know, the, the complexities of that and what does it actually mean to, you know, quote unquote, listen to Ukrainians, given that there's actually a diversity of opinion. Um, that, so that, that will be coming out at some point, but, um, yeah, nothing, nothing in the, uh, in yeah, the, well, in we'll be looking forward to it, Branko. Um, just want to let all the listeners know you can find all of his work at Jacobin. It's excellent. And it's coming out. I mean, you're, you're right pretty prolifically. So I would imagine, um, they can just log on and refresh, um, almost every day and see something new from you. Uh, thank you so much, uh, for taking the time with us on crashing the war party. For sure. I really appreciate it. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time. <laughs>